Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and journalist Anne Applebaum. Anne's new book is Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine. Anne, welcome. Now, the subject of your book is the Holodomor, if I'm pronouncing that right, which I'm probably not. No, no, that's um, fine, that's fine. Can you say what that word means and how, it, how it's charged in the context of Ukrainian memory? The word is just a, it's a Ukrainian word that just means death famine or deadly famine. And what it implies is an artificial famine or a deliberate famine, which was how the Ukrainians always remembered the famine of 1932-33. Subsequently, that, that idea that it, was a, that it was deliberately designed famine was disputed by many people, not least by Stalin, who first tried to deny that the famine had ever happened, going so far as to manipulate the census of 1937 to hide the fact that so many people had died. Many years later, for, for many years afterwards, there were sometimes people would concede, okay, lots of people had gone very hungry, but it was an accident. It was to do with the, the chaos of collectivization. Some people said, well, there was very bad weather that year and so on. My book seeks to go back to the story from the beginning of the story, which actually begins in 1917, as I'm sure we'll discuss, and explain why it was not an accidental famine. It was a designed famine. It wasn't because of the weather or And it was targeted at Ukraine. And it was targeted at Ukraine. It took place in the context of a wider famine. There was general chaos and hunger in the Soviet Union in in the early 1930s. But in essence, Stalin made use of that chaos in order to get rid of a problem. And for him, the problem was the Ukrainian peasantry, which had rebelled against the Bolsheviks before, during the Civil War era, and which he feared would rebel against them again. And the, and this, the 1932-33 famine was very specific. It, it begins in the autumn of 1932, and it climaxes in the spring of 1933, when nearly 4 million people died. You say the story goes back to 1917, to the kind of post-revolutionary civil war era. Can you talk a bit to start with about this thing that's obviously bound up with your story about the idea of Ukrainian sort of national identity? I mean, you say quite early in your book that part of the problem Ukraine's had over the years is it has no kind of natural borders. And so it's perpetually being invaded over history by, you know, everybody else, you know, all of its neighbours are sort of... Yes, Ukraine has no natural borders. I mean, it's from a British perspective, it's important to remember that lots of European countries have no natural borders. And so the borders of Poland and the borders of Germany and the, even the borders of France have shifted over the years. So it's not that unusual in a European context. It's also not as unusual as we think for countries to have come to some kind of national sovereignty relatively late or even not at all. I mean, you think of actually even Ireland, which makes an interesting comparison to Ukraine, but or or Slovakia, or countries which didn't have a national state until fairly recently, Ukraine isn't that unique. But because it didn't have one in the 19th century, it didn't have one in the 20th century, really up until the end of the 20th century, it lacked a presence on the world stage, and therefore it was easy to forget that it existed. I mean, Ukraine, Ukraine does have a separate history from Russia. I mean, it overlaps, of course, and so on. It was part of, of different earlier empires. It has a different language. It has a somewhat different culture. It's different, a little bit differently organized, but it also has a sense of itself as being different. 
and has at least in part always had that. I mean, again, like many European countries, it's multicultural. It's now very bilingual. I, I've been at public meetings in Kiev where people switch back and forth between Ukraine and Russian, and everybody understands both. Now, do you have and Ukrainian so, as well? well no, it's very, it's very irritating for me because I do understand Russian, and I have about 90% of Ukrainian, which I know either from knowing Russian or knowing Polish. I can recognize what people are talking about, but they almost don't notice that I mean, they notice, but they don't, they, everybody's bilingual, so they can do both. But nevertheless, there is a sense of Ukraine being different from Russia. And there has been, there have been independence or sovereignty movements in Ukraine since the 19th century. In 1917, at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, there was also a Ukrainian national revolution. So there was a, a group of People came to power in Ukraine at that time when, when Tsarism fell and declared the existence of a Ukrainian state. It didn't last very long, and there was it was almost immediately engulfed in really the worst part of the whole civil war took place in southern Russia and Ukraine. And there were, you know, I mean, literally armies marching back and forth across Ukraine. You know, Kiev changed hands a dozen times. There's a famous scene where the Poles at one point occupied Kiev, and they allegedly rode into the center of the city on tram cars, because really there was nobody defending it, so they they just walked in. <laughs> but it was it was real chaos and anarchy, you know, for, for a long time. And Stalin was very afraid of that anarchy. You know, even after the Bolsheviks imposed power, it took a couple of years, but kind of 1920, 1921. Um, Lenin they, they was were quite still, clever, wasn't he? I mean, he, he had this whole thing you described in a book, he said, he sort of confused Ukrainian nationalists by sending in, what did you call them, the Ukrainian Bolshevik yes, soldiers. Yes, I mean, there are a lot of echoes of the present, actually, in that, you know, there was a kind of fake Ukrainian force, which was really a Russian Bolshevik force, but called itself a Ukrainian liberation movement. And so, I mean, there were all kinds of attempts to create phony parties and phony nationalism and to take Ukraine that way. And actually, in the 1920s, when they when they did retake Ukraine, the Bolsheviks were very cautious of it. And they had this idea that they would, they would allow sort of within the communist system, they would allow the Ukrainians to have some kind of national movement, and they could have their own language, and they could have their own culture, and they could speak Ukrainian and, and so on. And they let that run all through the 1920s until the end of the decade when Stalin decided he'd had enough of that and that it was too dangerous because it created a sense of difference and a sense of independence in Ukraine. And the famine was in part a an attempt to end that. And it's important to remember, and I explain this in the book, that the famine took place at exactly the same time, and of course carried out by the same people, by the Soviet secret police. The famine took place at the same time as a major crackdown on the Ukrainian cultural elite, the intellectuals, the artists, politicians, even the Ukrainian Communist Party. So the idea was we're going to, you know, those two groups were the ones they feared the most. One was the peasants who had rebelled in the past and might do it again. And the other were the Ukrainian intellectuals. Now, is there a sort of continuity to an extent? Because in you know, the early 20s, you had Lenin and this idea of sort of war communism, we call it this, the huge grain expropriations as well. I mean, was Stalin essentially continuing what Lenin was doing, or was there something very different going on? Well, the Bolsheviks always dreamed of collectivization. I mean, and they tried it actually early on a few times, and they sort of gave up because nobody liked it or wanted to do it. And so, so yes, in a sense, Stalin was picking up on some of Lenin's earlier ideas and some ideas that had been present earlier in the in the revolution. The difference being that he imposed collectivization by force. So I think they pretended that it was voluntary, and they would hail the voluntary 
cadres who were carrying out collectivization, but of course it was forced, and not just in Ukraine, but in Russia and Kazakhstan and elsewhere, and they forced peasants onto collective farms. Peasants resisted, sometimes they resisted violently, and there's a chapter in my book that explains that in Ukraine it was particularly violent. People actually you know, dug up the weapons that they had in their barns hidden, left over from the Civil War, and they got them out and started shooting at the Red Commissars who were carrying out collectivization. So there was a violent, serious, heavy resistance. And of course, that was the resistance that triggered Stalin's reaction, and not just Stalin, but the whole Soviet elite. You know, oh, oh no, the Ukrainian peasants are, are at it again. We better do something about it. I mean, on the face of it, yeah, I mean, though obviously none of this seems to be exactly rational, you'd think if you're trying to suppress a nationalist movement that essentially presenting yourself as a sort of imperialist power who's stealing all the peasants' grain would have the exact opposite effect. Well, unless, unless you then use the subsequent famine to eliminate the peasants, which is what happened. So it was essentially just as long as you carried it through far enough. Yeah, I mean, this was, a, you know, this was an incredibly violent period of time. So, so yes, of course, you know, they weren't trying to win the peasants over you know, by being nice to them. They were trying to destroy them. And they were, so the first idea was to, the collectivization was, of course, not only an economic move, it was also sociological, you know, they disrupted traditional ways of life, and they destroyed the churches, and they took down, the, there are a lot of scenes where they take down the church bells and melt them, and, and they, you know, they destroy the traditional peasant ways of running themselves, the village councils, and so on, all of that is smashed, you know, in the, in the late 1920s. Um, and that's a deliberate attempt to destroy peasant culture. And then when there was resistance, there was a deliberate attempt to destroy the peasantry. The, were there also sort of external pressures on this? Because you talk a little about Stalin's business of selling grain to the West. And, you know, the expropriations were involved with that as well. And the idea of trying to get, I mean, later on, you talk about how they kind of open these hard currency shops and they realize that actually they get a lot of the peasants' gold if they starve them into forcing to sell them. Yes, there, no. So, yes, there was an economic aspect to it, as there were with all, I mean, for example, I mean, the gulag had an economic aspect to it. They also believed that that was going to help modernize quickly. But yes, they, Stalin began, Stalin, remember this, Stalin believed his propaganda. He believed his ideology and they believed that collectivization would create more grain. That was, a, that was the theory. It was meant to produce more. And they began to assume they would get more grain out of the peasants, and they began doing deals with Western companies in particular to export grain, as you say, and get hard currency so that they could buy the machines they needed for modernization. And when that didn't happen, you know, they always needed an explanation. So why doesn't, why doesn't our theory work? Our theory is scientific. Marxism is a science. Why isn't it working? Well, we need to, you know, there must be a reason, and the reason must be that the recalcitrant reactionary peasants are stopping us, or else the, the you know, the secret spies of the capitalist countries are undermining us, or something. I mean, there was always an explanation. Is that the kulaks, the, the There was always a reason why the theory wasn't working. But yes, you're right. They they tried to they they had this idea they could use collectivization. They could then use hard currency shops, which they put around Ukraine at that time, to get peasants to sell their gold in exchange for food, and they could use that to get whatever. I don't know, czarist era metals or jewelry people had in their cupboards and get that out to sell it too because they were trying to put money into their, into the, what was at that time, is a very fast growth of factories and industry. Yeah, I mean, you said describe Stalin kind of subscribing to his, his own ideology, but you also see he seems to be quite a kind of ideologically mobile. I mean, you, you say in the book that, you know, when Trotsky was still around and was a threat to him, he sort of taxed to the right. And that then when Trotsky's finished and in exile or heading for exile, he sort of suddenly 
tax left in order to yeah see no I mean, so no that's but those that's tac- right. that's political tactics not ideology I mean so so yes he was incredibly he was incredibly opportunistic and he did what he could you know his ultimate aim was gaining power but I, when I say ideology I mean he believed Marxist economics he believed that he believed in the international world revolution that it would eventually happen it was just you know the question of how you got there was you know, was, was up in the air. So the Soviet way of thinking, which I think we often find hard to understand, is, I mean, in some ways you see echoes in modern Russia that you know, the goal, okay, so the goal is world revolution or the, or the goal is collectivization and then how we get there depends on what opportunities are given to us and if we have to stop for a few years, we'll stop. And, you know, but they keep the, the ultimate aims in their heads. How much was, do you think, the sort of Stalin's doubling down and in the early 30s on the, you know, there was a famine underway and instead of relieving it, he kind of made it worse. Was that a sort of opportunistic move? That, yes, I mean, that's a perfect example of what I mean, of opportunism. So they, they see that there's a famine, they see that things are not going well and then there's a there's a precise moment. I mean, you can see it in, this is what my book documents. There's a, there's a documentary trail that you can find in the archives. There's a precise moment in the autumn of 1932 when they begin to change rules, especially for Ukraine. And they increase the grain requisitions for Ukraine, and they they create a border cordon around Ukraine so that people can't leave Ukraine, and they make it difficult for peasants to go into the cities. And then exactly at that moment, they begin sending activist brigades into Ukrainian villages who are not, not only collecting grain, but actually collecting everything. And I think this is the piece of the story that people don't know, that people when the, the the brigades would go into people's houses and take not just their grain but their you know their beets their peas their corn their potatoes whatever vegetables whatever food they had in the house literally everything and, and the clothes it, from the backs and clothes yeah. from their backs and on the on the argument that they were that if okay if you can't give us grain then give us your clothes instead and literally would take everything out of houses in in whole villages and then cut them off and make it impossible for them to escape, make it impossible for them to go to the cities or go to go to Russia, and then they died. I mean, and so it was a, you know, it wasn't just grain requisition. It was a lot more than that. Um, in, in particularly in a few, in several targeted places, they had they had villages which were deliberately blacklisted and identified as you know villages to be cut off. And the the blacklist laws were written also in this at exactly the same time in the autumn of nineteen thirty two. And this is when you get this spike in deaths of you know, two or three months later. Why and how did it, as it were, come to an end? Essentially it ended because they they decided to stop the grain requisition. There was a harvest in the summer of nineteen thirty three and then you know, as the harvest comes in, people slowly stop dying. They make, they stop the requisitions and they decide to stop the famine. They never, there was no humanitarian aid. There was no food brought, a little bit, sorry, I should, I, I shouldn't ever speak it. There was a little bit of, of humanitarian aid and there was a little bit of help for hospitals and orphanages and so on. But essentially, there was no big push to feed people. But after, it was almost as if after a certain number of people had died and after there was this period of terrible famine, they simply decided to end it. And they, there was no great fanfare. And actually, people kept dying of starvation really until the end of 1933 and into 1934. There were still a lot of food shortages. But they stopped, the brigades stopped taking food in that summer and that fall. And they seemed to have decided they had achieved what they wanted to achieve and they didn't need to do it anymore. And what was it that made you, I mean, it's a book that in, in the worst possible way has become kind of more current in the process of writing. Yes. But what made you sit down and think, this is, 
this is the next book I need so to So it's important to know that I started it, I think the first conversation I had about it was in something like 2012. So it was before the Maidan and before Ukraine was a great, important piece of current events. And in fact, there was some skepticism on the part of my agent and publishers about whether this was really a topical subject. But I decided to do it for several reasons. One is because I was convinced that the archival record was now such that you could show that it was an artificially designed famine, which in the past people had sort of hinted it or assumed it. Bob Conquest wrote a great book in the 1980s before that there were archives, you know, sort of more or less arguing that this was true, but without really being able to nail it. And I thought, well, you can nail it now. Let's do it. You know, let's let's do it in English and do it do it clearly. Also, it's part of a long-term attempt to understand why people do terrible things. I mean, I wanted to un- better I was understand. Going to say none of your books are very cheerful. No, <laughs> no. Although, you know, I mean, understanding why it happened. I mean, there's always the argument that if you can understand why it happened, then you can at least try to prevent it when you see it coming again. But and trying to know, so why, who were in these active in these brigades, and why did people do it, and how were they convinced to carry it out? And of course, one of the things the book shows is the terrible power of ideology and negative propaganda. I mean, the people who went into the peasants' houses and took all their food, who, why were they doing that? You know, you can't go back and interview them, but you can try and understand from what was written and said at the time what people's motives were. And they were, you know, they were convinced that the peasants were standing in the way of, some of them, well, some of them, I should say, were convinced that there was a real threat. Some people were afraid. Some people were hungry. You know, there were all kinds of reasons why people went along with it. And so it was partly in an attempt to understand that as well. And there's a chapter that talks about that in the book. I mean, you, you say the sort of archives now are, are sort of more or less available. Oh, the, Ukra- of, the Ukrainian you know, archives are among the most open in Europe. You can walk in and use them. One thing that's peculiar is, I mean, when, you know, after Yushchenko, you get this sort of very pro-Moscow Yanukovych running mm-hmm. Ukraine for a bit until he gets turfed out. But you say in the book that he didn't really restrict access to the archives, that he doesn't call it a genocide. No, it's it's important to remember, you know, Ukraine is different from Russia. And when Yanukovych came to power, remember, Yanukovych was elected. And then he did, you know, he carried out, I mean, what's kind of illiberal, you know, he tried, he took a sort of assaulted the the state from the position of, of being a democratic leader. We now see lots of people trying to do that in various countries. And he changed the rhetoric a little bit about the Holodomor and he, you know, seemingly in agreement with Russia. But no, he didn't shut the archives and he didn't really sack people. He, you know, he let the archival research continue. I mean, this, he never instituted a totalitarian dictatorship. Even at the very end, I mean, you say he was turfed out. Actually, he ran away. Remember, it's a very important point. And it seems like the the motive for him running away was as as the guards on the at that demonstration in the Maidan in 2000 when, when they started shooting at people, looks like he ran away because he was afraid of the consequences of that. You know, he'd agreed to let them start shooting, and then once they started shooting, he panicked or became afraid or thought he would be blamed or something, and ran away. You know, so there the kind of culture of violence isn't there, or just you know he didn't have the nerve to do what other dictators would have done in that position. And that's one of the reasons why Ukraine is different. Now you say in this book quite emphatically at the outset, you say this is not a book that's intended to kind of make a point about you know, modern No, it's, it's not. In, in, and by meant something very specific by that. I, I, it's not, I'm not taking sides, particularly in internal arguments in Ukraine or aligning myself with any particular political parties or anything like that, no. But it is 
you know, very much a political hot potato, and you deal with in, in an epilogue this question, which I'd like you to talk a little about, of, of you know, was it a genocide? Raphael Lemkin, you know, invented the term genocide, thought it was a genocide. No, no, I, I agree it was a genocide it w- in the sense that it was a deliberate attempt to eliminate people for, you know, for political, ethnic, cultural reasons. And that was Lemkin's original definition of what genocide meant. I mean, late, since then, as I explained, the term genocide became politicized and it was written into the UN Convention on Genocide, partly with Soviet assistance to almost deliberately designed in a way that would eliminate the Ukrainian famine because he he wanted to leave the word political out and so on. And then the the drive to proclaim it a genocide became very central to a number of Ukrainian government foreign policies in the 19 in the 2000s really. And then it became central to Russian foreign policy to prevent the Ukrainians from you know and it became a very politicized word in term. You, you quote Dmitry Medvedev then prime minister of Russia saying that saying to it, it's, it's another of the neighboring post-Soviet states, you can forget about getting this bit of territory back. Yeah, you know who, you... and that's a, that's the person who reported that was um, Prince Andrew. We'd be delighted to know. He was the one who heard that conversation. God, that's <laughs> <laughs> he does have a use. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, he, he's the one who heard Medvedev say that. So yes, they... Oh, the, sorry, the, we, we, we should say for the benefit of those listening that he'd said, said this, unless they supported the idea that the Holodomor wasn't a, a genocide. Yes, you know, he, he said, unless you, unless you, you know, you don't sign up to this UN campaign or we will, you know, you can kiss goodbye to Nagorno-Karabakh or something. It was something yeah, along those lines. That was, yeah, exactly what it was. But yes, so the Russians then interpreted this as, a, as an assault on them, and which is, of course, interesting because... There is no reason why Russia had to consider itself the legacy power, the, the country which is the you know maintains the Soviet legacy. I mean, Russia was absolutely in a position to say, no, of course we condemn Stalin too. The famine was a terrible thing. Um, you say Yushchenko actually was quite long on that, saying you know it's not the Russians, it's the yeah, Soviets. Yeah, no, no, the, and and as I said, there have been a number of Sov- Ukrainian leaders who have made that point. You know, why do the Russians want this? burden? Why do they want this historical legacy? All they, you know, they can separate themselves from the Soviet Union and denounce it. Well, why do you think they do? I think it's because it's largely because of the nature of their current elite, which descends directly from the KGB. Putin himself is a, a former KGB officer. And they, they see their current role in the world as one of reviving in restoring some aspects of Soviet power, and they would like to restore the memory of of Stalin and Stalinism. I think it's important in this context to see that they also, I mean, it's almost as if it's in the KGB DNA. Some of their feelings about Ukraine are, I don't want to say they're genocidal in the same way, but are, you can see parallels to the Stalin era in that Putin very much looks on Ukraine as a problem, you know, a disruptive element in the way that Stalin saw it. And in a sense, he's right in that when young Ukrainians were waving EU flags on the Maidan and saying, we want rule of law, which is what that 2014 demonstration was about, that was a that's an ideological challenge to the kind of power we have in Russia. Russia is an oligarchic dictatorship. It doesn't believe in rule of law, and it seeks very much to undermine the EU. So it sees Ukraine as a as an ideological competitor as well as just as well as a national, you know, geographical competitor. And so eliminating Ukraine also means eliminating that set of ideas and making sure that young Russians don't want the same thing. Yes, there's a phrase you use. I, I think it's a Leninist phrase. The 
the the idea of oh choose to change uh, sorry choose I didn't know choose to change sorry that's extraordinary measures yes extraordinary measures this idea that there's a point at which the rule of law is completely suspended yes choose to change choose well I'm glad you have trouble choose to change yes no it's it's a term that is originally Leninist and then Stalin brings it I mean it one of the the reason I brought it up in the book is that Stalin brings it back at the time of collectivization they say we need to suspend rule of law. So yes, uh, there's a long tradition of that. So, somewhat being revived in the Putin era. Yes. I mean, they don't have total suspension of all rule of law, no, but they skepticism about rule of law and the idea that law is something that the person in power determines, this is a Russian idea at the moment. And this is this is at least what the what the Maidan in Ukraine was against. You know, I don't know that they've entirely succeeded in bringing rule of law to Ukraine, but that's what people want. And of course, that's what liberal Russians want too, and that's what Putin would like to push down. So he sees the, you know, what he would like to undermine is a Ukraine, which is somehow a European Ukraine in that sense. Well, we'll have to see how that works out. Pan Applebaum, thank Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.